0: All these so-called independent uh, medias are really government-funded rags to try to put the government propaganda forth. And why does the government want to slander me? Why does the government want to arrest me? Why does the government try to silence me every chance they get? Simple. I speak the truth. All right.
1: All right. I'm going to start off with something just a little off the cuff. I've always been wanting to ask because I know that people that have ink, right? They get it for a particular reason. Usually it has a lot of meaning and you have a lot of tattoos. Would you mind just taking a couple of seconds or a minute or two just to kind of explain some of the tattoos and the symbolism of them? Of course. Yeah, please.
0: We'll start with the neck one. Cause that's the one everybody wants that everyone sees and everybody talks about the most. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, he's got a neck tattoo. I mean, he must be a bad guy. Uh reality check. My neck tattoo is Archangel Michael. Why is it Archangel Michael? Because at the beginning of the pandemic, when I was thrust into this position, it, and remember, I didn't do this because I wanted to or had a desire to. It was a necessity. When I was thrust into this position at the forefront and fighting against the establishment on the front lines, uh, I got that because he represents the leader of God's army, and the protector of mankind and what have i been doing in the last three years if not trying to protect mankind and trying to lead the army against uh, the army of good against the army of evil so that was the symbolism of that one for me and i put it on my neck because it's front and center to let everybody know that this is who i am uh on this side everybody sees that that's simple that's just my wife so she's a big part of my life so the left was Uh jennifer Yes, and then on this side, it's hard to make out. This was my newest one, and it's actually a knight, and he's thrusting his sword into the mouth of a creature, killing it, and it represents uh, the, the creature's Leviathan, and the knight's supposed to represent good versus evil and good slaying evil, and it represented me coming here and taking on the establishment in my run for mayor. So that one has huge symbolism for me. Uh, and then across the chest, I have a chest piece just to link everything. It's more of decorative, but I have a sakyant tattoo from Thailand, which is supposed to give you blessings and different, different things that are supposed to help you in your journey. And they actually do it with the stick and poke where they Mm -hmm. hit it. Mm -hmm. Not, not fun, but it was worth doing. So yeah, every one of my tattoos has a meaning. Every one of my tattoos is, is there for a good purpose. And to be honest, it's something like seventy or seventy-five percent of the population has tattoos now. So if you're one of those people, that's like, oh, I don't like tattoos. It's like you just literally said you don't like three quarters of the, the world. Like, that's pretty right. crazy.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And for those that, that don't know, uh, this is mayoral candidate and freedom fighter uh, Chris Sky. And some of the things I'd like to have a conversation with you about would be your political platform, mainly 15-Minute Cities. The reason why? So many people think that's conspiracy um, or conspiracy theory, and it's conspiracy fact. Uh, so this might wake some people up, I'm hoping. Uh, also, okay. how mainstream media has treated you through the electoral process. Of course, when this podcast is going to play, uh, that will be over. Uh, And then why I'm surprised you're doing this to begin with. And you kind of prefaced that when we just started the conversation uh, with the tattoo. So, Chris, thank you for being on the program.
0: My pleasure. And I'm looking forward to answering all your questions. Uh, The 15-minute cities, I wouldn't even say that's a main part of my platform. It's a main part of my discussion because I know we need to stop it. The main tenet of my platform for everybody listening would be fiscal responsibility. A smaller, more efficient government that actually generates far more revenue than it spends. So rather than having a massive budget deficit every year, we have a surplus every year, which will allow us to increase services while also decreasing taxes, especially on the seniors. So that's probably the main part of my platform is cutting all the waste, cutting all the uh, the useless spending on things like the green agenda, and things like the pride agenda, things that we don't need that aren't going to help the people, aren't going to help the communities that are just costing us a lot of money and putting us in debt and, and forcing us to raise our taxes, cut our services and increase poverty. That's the main part of my platform. But 15-minute cities, and this is according to the Toronto Star, by the way, a 15-minute city will drastically change the way people live and should be the most talked about issue of the election, but it won't be. That was the headline of the Toronto Star article. Thankfully, I ran for mayor, and I am the only one really talking about this. All the other mayors, if, they are, if it's brought up to them, they'll be like, oh, a 15-minute city is no big deal. It's just, it's just about convenience, and it's just about structuring everything so it's, it's, everything's closer for you. Living in jail is more convenient because you don't have to get, leave the building to go to the grocery store. It's inside there for you. Yeah, it's convenient. Is that how you'd want to live? Absolutely not. So you have to look at what a 15-minute city actually entails. And in order to do that, you have to understand where a 15-minute city concept came from and what the primary purpose of a 15-minute city is. 15-minute city idea came from the climate change agenda, number one. Number two, the primary purpose of a 15-minute city is not your convenience. The primary purpose of a 15-minute city is to reduce the individual's carbon footprint okay? Let me say that again. Reduce the individual carbon footprint of each citizen. That is the primary purpose of a 15-minute city. And how do they plan to do that? Number one, by eliminating wasteful private vehicle ownership. So the vast majority of you will no longer own a vehicle. That alone will reduce your carbon footprint significantly, according to them. In reality, it's simply reducing your actual footprint. If you do not have a car, you're not going to travel very far. You're going to be either on public transit, beholden to the government's whims, or you're going to have the, what they want, a bicycle, an electric bike. And if you're on, on a bicycle, you're never going more than 10, 15 kilometers away from your home, 99% of the time. It gets even better. We also live in a country called Canada, where for five months out of the year, there's snow on the ground. Where are you going on your scooter or your bicycle in the snow? Absolutely nowhere. So now you're going to be confined to your wonderful mixed-use building for five months out of the year. Very similar to the COVID lockdowns where they didn't want you to go more than five kilometers away from your home. But now you physically won't be able to because guess what? You don't have a car and you're not going to ride your bike or your scooter through the snow. So where are you going to go? You're gonna take the time to get on a subway or a bus to go try to find me. Okay, maybe you might, but you're definitely not gonna be traveling around as much or as freely as you once were, and that's just for starters. Where and why did this happen? How was this able to go into law? Our government—we all know our governments—declared a COVID emergency in 2020, correct?
1: Right, which what you kind of go- predicted as well.
0: <laughs> yes, of course. What we didn't, what most people didn't know, and still don't know to this day, that since 2019 in Canada, we've been under an official climate change emergency, just like the COVID emergency. And in 2022 of May, while we were still under the COVID lockdowns, our government quietly introduced a new zoning bylaw under the purveyor of climate change. And the very large Number one distinction in this new zoning bylaw, and this is from me, a man with 20 plus years in award winning planning, development, design, and building, working with every relevant municipality in the Toronto elections and beyond, and every department within that government from zoning, development, building, parks, environment, traffic, engineering, etc. I can tell you, since I've been alive and far longer. Every single development, large or small scale, would always have to have a minimum amount of parking for the development itself and for the surrounding infrastructure and for future growth and development of the city. Under the 2022 law, they came and they flipped the script. Now, every new development has a maximum amount of vehicle parking which is not even sufficient for the building, let alone for the surrounding infrastructure, let alone for any future growth and development. So they are setting the stage to intentionally leave you no choice, but to have no other option, but to live in their mixed use buildings and have no cars. And people will say, oh, well, how are they going to force you to give up your car? You crazy conspiracy theorist. It's very simple. I just explained it whenever they build a new building. Now, for instance, I posted a couple of them. I'll post you a building, it'll have 500 residences, it'll have 100 retail spaces, and 50 commercial spaces, yet it'll only have 100 parking spaces for cars, and 500 parking spaces for bikes, Right. and, ev- and every single new development has these same stipulations, and there's not one or two of these going around, there's dozens and hundreds of these going around. Right, so now, Chris,
1: a- sorry, yes. Now, this has already been implemented in some parts of the UK. They've already gone through some trial runs. I believe they were trying to do it in Hamilton as well, or that pilot project has started. And in some parts of the world, they already do have lotteries for people to even get vehicles. So how close are we to that type of scenario? Like, what is the timeline on something like this? I know it's happening now. But just like with COVID, I can't believe we went from two weeks to flatten the curve to I couldn't go out there and generate income for my family, right? If you were to tell me at the beginning, it was like this would last for three years and we would have vaccine passports. I wouldn't have believed you. And again, you foresaw that, which is something else I want to talk about. I want to get back to that. Uh, So how far away is this timeline from this actually being our reality?
0: Well, it's already our reality. Now, the only question is how much smaller the prison is going to get. So already all all over Canada, Toronto to Edmonton, they're implementing these 15-minute city-style projects. However, in places like Oxford, England, they are far, far more advanced into this agenda. And for everybody listening, the Oxford example is exactly what we are being modeled after. So we are going to – just like we copied England with all the pandemic restrictions, we're going to be copying England with all these World Economic Forum conditions. So Oxford, England, was the first pilot city to do this. And they have now their full-blown 15-minute city infrastructure in effect. And I was there September 2022, because I was invited to speak in England, I was actually headlining the worldwide rally, the largest worldwide rally in the world in England, and they put me over and above David Icke, which was friggin amazing for me because he's been a hero of mine, but I ended up visiting Oxford to see for myself what all the fuss was about, and you know what I saw? They have now divided Oxford, which was a city, into what they call six districts straight out of the Hunger Games, and already, just in case you wanted to know, Edmonton, which only has about a million people compared to Toronto, which is much smaller, has already been divided into 15 districts. So Oxford is now six districts. Each district is now uh, is now separated by traffic cameras that monitor your license plates when you drive through and will ticket you if you drive through at the times you're not allowed or if you're driving through too many times. And it also has physical barricades and bollards preventing vehicle traffic from going through to the point where people are actually breaking the bollards, filling them with concrete, and trying to get their cities back. On top of that, to further destroy traffic and small business, more and more Uh, vehicle lanes are being replaced with bike and pedestrian only now not only does this destroy the traffic and stuff for the city and the mobility of the city every single small business on that street is now going to go broke because all these small businesses rely on people coming in from the suburbs to the city for their specialized product Mm. and when you take away the vehicle traffic now, the only clients they have access to those shops are the ones that are within biking and walking distance. Right. And that's not even a fraction of the clients. So every single small business goes broke. That's what a 15 minute city does it destroys small business, it destroys mobility it destroys people's ability to go and to 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 literally just live their life the way they want. So now in Oxford you have a certain amount of times you're allowed to leave your district before you get fined and certain times of the day you're allowed to leave your district or you get fined. And how long will it be until they have armed guards there that actually arrest you before you leave your district, just like in the Hunger Games? And people say, oh, that's a crazy conspiracy theory. Meanwhile, they already have it divided into districts. They already have traffic cameras and barricades and fines, and they're already trying to destroy small business and vehicle traffic in general.
1: So let me jump in here. It's obvious that you're well-spoken. Uh, You've led many rallies. David Icke was actually on this program, and I have great admiration for him as well. And to be able to speak ahead of him obviously speaks of how people view you, your ability to move people. You obviously have leadership qualities. Without question, you're well-spoken. And Lord knows you had lots of coverage from mainstream media during the pandemic, When they had nothing nice to say about you, even though you have these qualities that would make you a good mayoral candidate, Uh, being able to maneuver people and inspire people for change. How has the process been? I mean, I've known mainstream media. Like, I got out of mainstream media myself, and now I'm into podcasts because I I won't say that mainstream media lies. You'll probably go that far. (laughs) I'm going to play nice, and I'm going to say they definitely omit truth. You now being on the inside of that and at least having an opportunity to run, knowing full well that they were going to do their best to stomp you out. What has that process been like for you? Give someone an example or a feeling of what that would be like, knowing that all all the odds are stacked up against you. Uh, You're not going to get any favors from the mainstream media and how you persevere and keep on going.
0: Well, I just want to touch on one other thing, too, before I get right into that, because it's going to tie in. Uh, You've talked about how I'm a good mayoral candidate because I can inspire people. I'm well-spoken. I'm articulate. But I'm also a very highly qualified mayoral candidate because I'm the only candidate that actually has public and private experience. I worked in the private industry in development, design, building, and planning, which required me to work within the public sector but have to be abided by the timelines and monetary constraints of the private sector. So I got things done in the public sector when they said, oh, it's going to take six months. I got it done in six weeks. So I was able to cut through the red tape and the bureaucracy of the public sector while working in conjunction with the private sector. Nobody else has that ability that's running. On top of that, I was also in charge of creating the pro to secure project financing from the largest lenders in Canada. So I know how to manage money. I know how to manage resources. I know how to get things done in a very short amount of time. I know what things are worth and I know how to make every resource last. So there's nobody that has that kind of ability. So you would think, the mainstream media would be eating me up as a candidate and talking about my over 20 years of experience in the private sector and success and working within the government and also all of my speakings all around the world, etc. But what do they act, what do they do instead? They call me a conspiracy theorist. They talk about all the times I was arrested. They never talk about how every single time I was found not guilty. And then the only way I'll even be talked about in the media is when they arrested me once again on false charges, which was just last week. And they put me in the media. They try to make me look bad. And if you go and find any source online... That's talking bad about me, and I'll give you two examples because you asked for examples. There's an exa- there's a mag an an independent magazine called The Local. Look it up, The Local. They have an they have Twitter and they have a Google web page, that has a candidate tracker page with fact check bios on all the candidates. Every candidate's in there, including me. My biography was so slanderous and defamatory that it looked like a super villain from a comic book. And I took a screenshot of it and emailed them and said, if you guys do not change this within 24 hours, I'm sending it straight to the frigate. I'm sending it straight to the courts. This is 100% electoral interference and defamation of character. And within 24 hours, it was changed, still completely defamatory, but not quite as defamatory. So you could tell they had consulted lawyers to see what they could get away with. Now, this independent source of media has a page buried sources of funding. When you click on sources of funding and you scroll down to the bottom of the page, surprise, surprise, there's a giant funded by the government of Canada logo. Oh my God, look at that. Government telling people that I'm bad and using the media to do it. Then you have another site called anti-hate.ca run by a man named Bernie Farber. This website was... ...with Antifa, a known terrorist organization. On top of that, it slanders me very badly and other freedom fighters. And then, if you search in Google, you find out that Justin Trudeau and his liberal government are directly funding anti hate.ca. It's right on the liberal government website. So, all these so called independent uh, medias are really government-funded rags to try to put the government propaganda forth. And why does the government want to slander me? Why does the government want to arrest me? Why does the government try to silence me every chance they get? Simple. I speak the truth. And when I'm speaking the truth while they're telling you all lies, it's pretty easy to tell who's telling the truth and who's telling a lie. And they can't argue against the truth with more lies because then they're just going to make themselves more exposed. So what can they do? They could try to discredit me, defame me, so people don't listen to what I say. They could try to lock me up so I physically can't be heard or try to intimidate me so I become silent and don't speak out. But when none of those things work, what can they do? Answer exactly what they're doing now. Try to pretend like I don't exist when every single person in the country is talking about me and talking about my campaign. I couldn't even do a podcast in the parking lot of the gym this morning because everybody that was walking by the car noticed me came over and had to roll down the window and be like, sorry guys, I'm on a live. That's the kind of attention we get. We can go anywhere in Canada, even around the world and people recognize us and people recognize us and they thank us for what we were doing and they believe in what we were doing. We are going to get so much support tomorrow, it's going to be ridiculous. And we have a secret weapon that nobody else has, besides the truth, which is the best weapon of all. You know what that is? Tell me, Chris. It's the people like me, the Mm. unregistered voter. There's 1.9 million registered voters right now for this election, which is also a a record, because in 2022, there was only 1.6 million registered voters for John Tory and all the other positions that were being elected. Now, this is just the by-election for the mayor's position. Never before in history has a by-election had more registered voters than a normal election. But now we have 300,000 more registered voters, which could be a good thing or could be a, an indication of massive voter fraud. However, we have another, one, another thing. There are over 500,000 people like me that are eligible to vote but not registered. They're not included on any list. They're not included in any polls. They're not included in any calculations or equations because 99% of the time, those people don't vote. That's why they're not registered. But why don't they vote? Because every election, they look at the hand-picked candidates that the media is telling them they can choose from, and they're like, wow, none of those people represent me. None of those people are going to make any difference in my life, so I'm not going to waste my time to go vote. With me, they don't feel that way. With me, they feel like I'm their only hope. I was one of the only people, and you like my predictions, so I'm going to give you predictions. I was one of the only people that predicted that this by-election would have more votes than the actual 2022 election. And people said I was absolutely nuts. That's never happened any time before in history. All the analysts, including my own political strategists that work on my campaign, told me they anticipate only 350,000 votes in this election. I said hogwash. We're going to get a minimum of 600,000 votes in this election. And sure enough, early voting for the 2022 election was 110,000. Early voting for our 2023 by-election was already 130,000. So we're already on pace to have more votes than we did in the by-election, which is something that's never happened before in history, which is something that I predicted. So when I can predict things that go against the grain that happened 99.9% of the time, it, people should really be paying attention.
1: I agree. And I would have never predicted that you use the word hogwash, to be quite honest. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: what is it that gives you this
1: uncanny ability, do you think, to forecast these events? Like, you're just an intuitive person, you just see things lining up, you've been paying attention to politics for quite some time? Or is it just the fact that you pay so much attention to just government, and maybe the history of governments as well when it comes to looking to further their control?
0: Do you want the, the real answer? Or do you want the
1: answer I'm supposed to tell people? Give me a little bit of the one that you're supposed to tell people, then give me the truth.
0: I just have an extremely, extremely developed deductive reasoning skill set better than Sherlock Holmes. Is that the
1: that's one the that you're I'm allowed? Is that the one you're saying is okay to tell? Like, and then you're going to tell me the real one, which one is it? Or we have to decide. That's,
0: not, that's the one I'm supposed to tell people.
1: Okay. And, and the real one?
0: <laughs> well, if anybody knows about families that actually influence things, people like the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, and people that are behind the curtain, et cetera, uh, let's just say I was associated with them since I was born uh, in Canada. So I know how these people think I was immersed in their world growing up. I know exactly how they feel about the general public and I just know their characters and I know their moves and I know their skill set. So it's very easy for me to predict what they're going to do, especially when they basically have it all planned out for generations in advance. Uh, I don't know how to say it any better than that without getting myself assassinated. Yeah. Again. Like, am I, am I going to be okay?
1: I'm <laughs> I'm just going to omit this part from the podcast. Oh, my God. That's a bunch of hogwash, Chris. All hogwash, I swear. All hogwash. Okay. I only have a couple more questions. Thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Um, now, I- I'm surprised that you ran to begin and, with. Oh, by
0: the way, that's the other reason I got the Archangel Michael, because it's almost like I was being... Prepared to be a Trudeau-style global puppet leader. Hmm. And instead, I just became a champion of the people. Yeah,
1: which, you know, we appreciate. Now, I had mentioned very early on in the podcast, like, why some or myself surprised that you were running to begin with. And the reason is, as I saw you on a previous podcast with your wife, Jennifer, that you have tattooed on your arm. And she was the one that had a really strong influence in regards to you speaking out and saying what you had to say from what I can recall, it was just something along the lines that you obviously saw that things weren't going the way that you wanted this country to go. And you felt compelled to say something, but she was just that little bit of a nudge to get you to speak. And then go figure speaking would lead for you being a mayoral candidate and trying to influence, you know, uh, a,
0: a city and a country. And the world but yeah I was always speaking out against the government but I was doing it kind of in a satirical way from not really behind the scenes but not at the forefront you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and then when all the COVID stuff happened and I was kind of thrust into that position it felt like a responsibility and it felt like she well she basically even made me feel she made me feel that way that if I didn't help the people uh that everything that happened would be my fault and obviously it's, that's not directly true, but at the same time, now that we see what I was capable of, it probably was true. <laughs> so she did give me the spark that made me want to, I wanted to do it, but I didn't want to risk my life. I didn't want to risk my family. I didn't want to risk everything that I knew I'd be risking, just like everybody else that, that that's compelled to speak out, but doesn't because they already know that there's going to be an inherent cost to it. But When I weighed everything and when I had the support of my wife, it made it a lot easier for me to make the decision that I would dedicate myself to helping humanity, preventing this from happening. And the primary reason is they're coming for the kids. We know this. And we need to protect the children at all costs. And if you're in a position of power, whether political, economic, or just speaking power, and you don't use that power to help people Well, you know there's people out there using their power to hurt people. Well, we know the old saying, all evil takes to succeed is for good men to do nothing. And we saw in the pandemic, millions of supposed good men literally do nothing but everything they were told to do by the corrupt government. And if we didn't have a few strong people to stand up and say what was really going on and inspire people to just say no to the tyranny where would we be right now you think we'd be free you think we'd be talking about this or you think we'd still be under lockdown you think the trucker convoy would have ever happened? You think we'd be traveling around the world? No, we'd still be under some form of lockdown. They'd still be finding reasons to impose the vaccine passport. And the vast majority of men would still be making excuses for their cowardice.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Chris, I don't think we could sum up the podcast any better than that. Um, well, I think we can. Oh, go for it. It's <laughs> The, the floor's yours.
0: <laughs> it's very easy. Okay. There's a massive psychological propaganda campaign being waged. We knew that since the start of COVID. All of us are still suffering PTSD from it. So you know the mainstream media is lying. And the mainstream media is going to tell you Olivia Chow or any other candidate's going to win. And a vote for me is a waste of a vote. That is the biggest lie anyone's ever been told. And no other candidate in our history has been able to unite the vast amount of people that I have especially when we consider the youth. The youth have never been more aware and never been more engaged and never been more interested in an election. And when we can combine the youth with the seniors, with all the different ethnicities and religions that are against this anti-child agenda, we can win a historic record-breaking landslide victory that will set the stage For future victories in elections for decades, we can create a political dynasty for the people of Canada that can last an entire generation and replace all the stolen wealth and opportunities that we've lost over the last three to four decades. That is my pledge to you, the people that I am willing to serve, young, old, everybody. When you vote number 82, Chris Sakocha, tomorrow for mayor, your lives and your communities are going to get a fundamental and tangible positive change immediately and for many years to come. Thank you.
1: And Chris, no matter what the result, would there be another run for
0: you? Oh, I'm going to be, I, I have a feeling that this is my calling I don't even, I'm i not even looking towards any other thing because I'm, I'm 99%, 99, 99, 99% sure we're gonna win it and we're gonna win it big tomorrow. And I'm already focusing on my transition and I'm already focusing on dealing with high technology firms to start applying their new technologies to our, to our budgets and to our, and to our programs to further enhance our city and further enhance the revenue and further enhance the quality of life of our citizens. I'm not gonna skip a beat. It's gonna just be seamless transition and people are gonna see the benefits right away. I know, I know I got the people on my side. I know we're going to win tomorrow. And I know that Toronto is going to be on its way to being the best city in the world. 82, Chris Sacocha tomorrow. Thanks, guys.
1: All right. And we'll see if the prophecy comes true like it usually does with Chris Guy, Toronto mayoral candidate, freedom fighter. Thank you for everything that you do. And until next time, guys, you take care, be well, and love
0: simply because you can.